The Tom Woods Show, episode 1581. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy the Tom Woods Show, it's time to go to the next level. And next level Tom Woods is libertyclassroom.com. This is where my friends and I teach all the stuff you did not get in your conventional education, history, economics, and more, the way it ought to be taught with all the content they left out or distorted. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Phil Magnus is back with us today. Phil is Senior Research Fellow over at the American Institute for Economic Research, which you can find at AIER.org. And he's been following very closely the uh, 1619 Project over at the New York Times relating to race in American history and some of the back and forth that's taken place between that paper and some critics, well, indeed, and supporters. And he's kind of stayed on top of the uh, various reactions and uh, counterarguments that have been going on ever since. And I thought it would be a good time to, especially since I just read an article of his from last month summarizing the whole issue, to bring him back on and talk about it further. So, Phil, welcome back. Thanks for having me. This 1619 project, you know, if you thought it was something that would be fleeting and it was a series of pieces and then that would be the end of it, uh, you were wrong. It's still generating discussion and debate and responses from scholars of all stripes. I recently saw a series of socialist scholars who have their own disagreements with the 1619 Project. So at the very least, it has generated some discussion, which is at least something. But why don't we start off by having you just explain for folks who happen to miss it, what exactly was the New York Times doing uh, with this so-called 1619 Project? Right. So the 1619 Project came out uh, at the end of last August as a special edition of the New York Times Magazine that's uh, stated purpose was to resituate a vision of American history, a look at American history uh, through the eyes of the enslaved, through the eyes of people that had been discriminated against uh, through the African-American experience. And it was done through a series of essays by academics, journalists, um, even a few poets and uh, literary figures uh, chimed in on it, uh, exploring basically from 1619 to the present day, 1619 being the year that the first slaves arrived at Jamestown. So um, it was a, an attempted uh, re-envisioning of history that had uh, some points of it that were uh, uh, you know fair to state and, uh, and really consequential, such as looking at uh, how aspects of, of the war on drugs and uh, some of the current prison state are discriminatory against African-Americans. But uh, the area that got the majority of the pushback was its historical narrative from roughly the time of the American Revolution through the Civil War uh, when it's looking into things such as the economics of slavery and some of the politics behind the major events of that period. And what we've seen over the past uh, several months is historians started to, to uh, subject some of these claims to scrutiny and find that the main essays on that are, are premised upon a very – partial, almost uh, propagandistic interpretation of some of these events uh, that also is connected to a, a, a political message, an anti-capitalist political message. And for that reason, in order just to make that a little bit clearer, I want to go a little bit out of order, mm -hmm. uh, out of chronological order in terms of the issues we discussed, because what I first saw in terms of criticism of the 1619 Project had to do with the claims made about 
the extent to which slavery contributed to American economic growth. Right, and right. Because that ties very much into the present day because then the implication is, well, capitalism is morally tainted. American society, uh, our wealth is morally tainted uh, and all that. And, and right off the bat, without knowing the stuff that you knew about the so-called new history of capitalism, we'll get into that, it just seemed implausible to think that slavery is the explanation. I mean, of all institutions on earth, to think that slavery is how a real right. powerhouse comes about. Like, uh, it's like when people say we can't compete with China because they have slave labor. As if anybody mm -hmm. ever would think that slave labor is the source of innovation and dynamism. You know, well, it, when it's just right. the opposite. So I want to start there. And um, can you tell me about what are they claiming? And how, what does this have to do with something called the new history of capitalism? Yeah, so uh, the 1619 Project relies on a, um, a branch of the historical literature that popped up in the last decade, refers to itself as the new history of capitalism. And this is a group of, uh, of scholars that have sought to, uh, to reinvigorate what they call economic history, but they're doing so from a very far-left, anti-capitalist perspective – and one of the main focuses of, the, of this group of scholars is um, the history of slavery and the economics of slavery. So the big figures in it are Sven Beckert at Harvard, uh, Walter Johnson also at Harvard, um, Ed Baptist at Cornell. Uh, there, there's four or five others, uh, Calvin Shimmerhorn at um, Arizona State. Uh, they've all written manuscripts in roughly the last 10 years or so that have tried to resituate the story of slavery in various degrees um, as the centerpiece of the American economy prior to the Civil War. And the idea is because of that, uh, American economic growth, industrialization, basically capitalism that emerges out of the 19th century and propels the United States by the end of the century to basically the, the second largest economy in the world, that all of that is tainted by and derivative of the legacy of slavery. So um, it's, a, it's a very strong economic claim. It has little grains of truth to it in the sense that uh, there's clear empirical evidence that slavery was profitable to the slaveholders, and there's clear empirical evidence that slavery is intertwined with all sorts of aspects of the economy. But the uh, statistical claim that this is the main driver of American capitalism is just so grossly out of uh, proportion with the evidence that uh, it's difficult to even take this seriously as a, um, a matter of empirical inquiry. So uh, Ed Baptist wrote a book uh, called The Half Has Never Been Told, and he's actually become pretty infamous for this uh, passage in a book where he purports to calculate the share of GDP, so gross domestic product, total output of the United States, in the antebellum period that derives from cotton production. And he basically invents his own formula to do so that, uh, that takes uh, double and triple countings of all the intermediate steps of cotton production to where he gets to a point and declares that cotton accounts for 50 percent, a whole half of the uh, United States economy in the, uh, the late antebellum period, uh, which is just absurd. Uh, if you actually take the, uh, the, the real statistics, do GDP by the right formula, uh, you find that cotton accounts for about 5 percent. And it's uh, it's a little more fluid on how you estimate all of slavery, but cotton is by far the biggest production item of the plantation system. If you add in sugar and tobacco and a few other crops, you're probably looking in the ballpark neighborhood of 8 to 15 percent of the U.S. economy is tied to slavery. So not insignificant, 
but this is like comparable to major industries like the railroads, uh, some of the textile industries in the north um, in size, and nowhere near enough to account for uh, the full of economic output and economic growth. Uh, the twist on it, though, is Baptist statistic, uh, this completely false and debunked statistic, has been picked up and run with all over the place. Uh, so not Ta-Nehisi Coates gave a famous uh, uh, testimony before Congress earlier in uh, last summer where uh, he espoused slavery reparations. And he cited this statistic uh, before the United States Congress uh, claiming that half of U.S. production prior to the Civil War came from slavery. Uh, cited it to Ed Baptist, and it's trumpeted all over CNN and MSNBC, and uh, every uh, news outlet the next day is with the main soundbite, even though it's utterly false. So uh, that's the kind of uh, empirical evidence that's underlying the, uh, uh, the many of the claims of the 1619 Project. And what you find is it's scholars like Ed Baptist, scholars like Sven Beckert, uh, who have invested in this area seem to be the drivers of uh, the sole drivers of its interpretation of the economics of slavery. So that's the that was to me that mistake is on such a grand scale that it just soured me on the whole thing. And I, I suppose that's unfair because it's it is one mistake and and it's not the entire project, but it's such a darn big mistake. Right. So right. so let's let's move to something where. Um, you have had a direct scholarly contribution uh, yourself to make, yeah. and that involves the issue of Abraham Lincoln and his views of slaves, freed slaves, black people in general, and racial colonization. And right. obviously you know this debate better than, than just about anybody, but I'll just say that we all know about Lincoln's rhetoric uh, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates about uh, you know, the white white people should be assigned the superior position, and we we know all that. But there are people who explain that away, who say it's the thing they say in the 21st century. He grew while in office, right. and and, right. and he didn't really mean that, or it it changed by the by later on, or or whatever. First of all, I, what is your opinion of 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 that claim, and then talk about some of the work and your book uh, yeah. that involves new sources. Like, I want to get to the bottom of all this. Right, right. So the issue with colonization in Lincoln is that this is a part of his political program dating back to the 1840s, the earliest evidence that we have of his foray into Illinois politics. Uh, so he emerges as a follower of, of Henry Clay, who's the, uh, the leader of the Whig Party, and though Clay is a Southerner, uh, Clay has certain reservations about slavery, and he adopts basically a formula of what he what he thinks is going to put the United States onto the path of uh, weaning itself off of this institution. And that formula is that uh, we gradually, slowly chip away at slavery through compensation to the slave owners, inducements to get them to manumit their slaves over the years. Uh, we winnow away at this institution domestically and pair that with the process of, uh, of basically repatriating or colonizing uh, the slaves abroad, uh, former slaves now, in uh, places like Liberia, which was the main colony of the early uh, eight, uh, 19th century for uh, African Americans that were manumitted that wanted to move abroad. Lincoln picks this up, and he sees it as a, uh, a mechanism that both eases the process of emancipation, but also, uh, at least in his mind, he it, it forestalled 
uh, post-emancipation racial conflict, which uh, to some degree he accurately predicts the South is going to be a very brutal place if you're African-American and you've recently been freed from slavery, but you're still living under like a majority white uh, government rule. So uh, his solution to this is to uh, have subsidized, although voluntary, opportunities for, uh, for black freemen to relocate abroad outside of the United States. Uh, it starts with Liberia, but they realize that that's uh, uh, much too far. That's a, a multi-month journey by a ship, and it isn't on a regular route. But then, then he starts looking to the Caribbean as a closer alternative that's just a few days out of any uh, U.S. port as locations that they could purchase land or maybe contract with a foreign government and subsidize and induce the freedmen to move there and create a, um, a colony of their own, but also a colony that has closer ties to the United States, creates a uh, like a geopolitical imprint in that part of the world. Uh, and Lincoln is, is, is pretty heavily convinced of this. He's uh, uh, from Illinois politics onward. He's involved in the uh, both the state and the uh, national colonization societies. He espouses it across several speeches, uh, attributes it and credits it to Henry Clay. And by the time he takes office in 1861, he starts seeking federal appropriations to uh, to pair colonization with the gradual steps he's taking toward emancipation during the Civil War and actually succeeds in doing that. So the 1619 project got into this debate by um, by calling attention to this aspect of Lincoln's legacy, noting that it's not discussed as much as uh, as the better known components of, say, like the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and then they quoted from a uh, a fairly notorious speech he gave in August 1862 to a, a delegation of free African Americans at the White House, where he basically urged them to uh, to find a location abroad and was making the pitch of why they should leave the country and and making the pitch that this would be necessary for uh, solving the problem of, of racial relations in the post-slavery society. So uh, it's a really odd speech, but uh, it was prominent at the time, got a lot of coverage, and the 1619 Project drew attention to it which got a whole bunch of backlash from historians that have uh, have been just, as you said, uh, more of this narrative that Lincoln evolved and we need to treat him as an evolutionary character rather than a, uh, a colonizationist as his rhetoric and, and many of his actions uh, pretended. So this is actually a case where the 1619 Project more or less has it right, would you say? Yes. Yeah, I, I yeah. would say that they have the upper hand of the facts on this one. And I say this as someone who's been very critical of other aspects of the 1619 Project, particularly its claims about capitalism and its claims about the economics of slavery. But uh, but this is an area where a lot of the historians have missed the mark over the past uh, few years to decades and have an, a, a, attempted to build Lincoln and out from this earlier uh, uh, aspect of his policy. Uh, and it's kind of a weird way you get to the dynamics where Lincoln has to either be wholly good or wholly evil. And I'm not arguing that at all. I'm arguing that we there, there's something of a middle ground here that we recognize this person as a, um, a complex political actor that uh, that does genuinely believe slavery is wrong, does gen- genuinely act against slavery, but he pairs it with uh, policies that are, are often foreign to us in the present day. Just because they uh, they take a very clear racial overtone, and colonization is one of those. So the, uh, the the history profession, or I'd say up until at least maybe about uh, ten to fifteen years ago, the dominant theme was that Lincoln believed in colonization early on and espoused it early on, 
but he either evolved away from it as the course of the Civil War played out, or some of them throw another twist into it. They say he used it as a, a palliative or a ruse to lull the uh, northern population into accepting the goal of emancipation. So it's like making a fake argument in favor of colonization to get them on board with the Emancipation Proclamation and then dropping it uh, by design once emancipation is through. So it's it's, it's kind of Lincoln hoodwinks the population into a more radical position than he was espousing. Uh, so these, these were the dominant theories up until about 10 to 15 years ago. What's changed is the dating of all that because uh, in order for both of those theories to work out, you have to uh, have a date around the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, 1863, where the, where the change starts to execute, where it starts to take place in Lincoln's actions, not his rhetoric. But what we find, and this, this comes from uh, my own work and, and the work of a, a few other historians that have started to dig into this, uh, there's, there was a trove of archival material held in the foreign archival repositories of countries across the Caribbean and the European powers that used to own them that uh, that document very thoroughly Lincoln's continued negotiation on colonization well after the Emancipation Proclamation. So uh, he issues this decree in January 1863. By June, he signed a uh, uh, what was previously a completely unknown, uh, completely private and secretive agreement with the government of Great Britain, uh, officially transmitted it over to them to colonize freed slaves in what are now the countries of Guyana and Belize. Uh, we found other evidence that he even signed uh, or the U.S. government signed a treaty with the Netherlands to establish a, a freedman's colony in what is now uh, the nation of Suriname. And this was done in late 1863, almost a year after the supposed date when the evolution or the, uh, uh, the shift toward the lullaby takes place. So the timeline doesn't comport at all with uh, what the previous historical consensus had held about colonization. And what I argue is, you know, if, if you start to encounter some of this evidence and take into account what was really going on in Lincoln's mind, uh, we cannot rule out that he is intending to continue this project in a post-war presidency. So the second term, it's the great what if, had he not been assassinated and the Civil War is over, uh, it basically comes to an end right before the assassination, uh, the question is, does he pursue a peacetime colonization policy in the second term? And there's quite a bit of evidence that he probably was intending to do that. All right, let's take a quick break and we got uh, more to discuss. Hey, everybody, this election season, here's how you can go deep, direct, and unfiltered. C-SPAN's campaign 2020 differs from other political coverage for one simple reason. It's C-SPAN. C-SPAN brings you an unfiltered view of politics so you can see the biggest picture for yourself and make up your own mind. I've been on C-SPAN quite a few times over the years, and they couldn't have been fairer to me. My message was transmitted to the audience unfiltered and direct. On C-SPAN, you'll find in-depth, uninterrupted coverage of the candidates, the issues, and the events that are steering us to Election Day. Follow the campaigns and watch the town halls, rallies, and more live as they happen on C-SPAN. Then dig even deeper and search the candidates' positions over the years using C-SPAN's online archive with more than 250,000 hours of video. Get an unfiltered view of politics with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 on the C-SPAN television networks, on the C-SPAN app, or online at cspan.org. All brought to you as a public service by your television provider. Make up your own mind with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020. Can you tell me the name of the book where you actually wrote about this? 
Yes. So, so the uh, the book is titled Colonization After Emancipation, Lincoln and the Movement for Black Resettlement. That was University of Missouri Press, came out in 2011. That's myself and uh, co-authored with Sebastian Page. And then I've also written uh, several shorter articles, and including a piece for the uh, – um, there's a, an essential Civil War history project that's hosted at uh, Virginia Tech. That's, uh, so that, that piece is basically like the encyclopedia version of everything that happened. What kind of a response did you get to that I mean, from historians, let's say? Yeah, so uh, it was an interesting response in the sense that the, I say the, the historical community split around the issue. Uh, there were some people that had already, always suspected that this element of Lincoln's uh, scholarship had, had existed and continued and had written other works that hinted at that. So uh, Paul Escott at uh, uh, Wake Forest University wrote a, a book arguing this. There's a few others that noticed that, and, and they were generally in agreement. Uh, they, they thought that this was uh, was basically vindication of something they had suspected for several years. Uh, Henry Louis Gates, uh, the uh, famous African-American scholar at Harvard, who uh, in some ways is also a, a roundabout intellectual contributor to the 1619 Project, sent me a, a, a very praiseworthy note that he put in one of his articles that said uh, – uh, basically, this is the detective work that teased out what the historians had missed. Uh, so got some very strong uh, reviews of it. Uh, the Times Literary Supplement uh, compared it favorably to that year's uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, which was Eric Foner's biography of Lincoln. And I actually had a very good conversation with Foner himself where uh, he indicated he was very appreciative of the new discoveries. Uh, so that's been one part of the uh, historical community. But then there's been another part uh, – which interestingly enough involves some of the signatories of the uh, the historian's letters criticizing the 1619 project, and this is Sean Wilentz at um, at Princeton. James McPherson uh, had also previously argued this. Uh, they took a much more skeptical route, and they've really uh, kind of dismissed the evidence and said that uh, this isn't really consequential. We're adhering to our old story. Uh, Lincoln backed away from colonization. He evolved. Uh, he used it as a palliative, and by the end of his life, uh, we can't take this as a, uh, a component of him. And that's been their attack on the 1619 Project. Well, let's switch now to one of the other major topics, and that you covered in a recent review article over at AIER. Yeah. And that involves the American Revolution. Yes. Because the claim that is that one of the key factors behind the American Revolution involved uh, slavery and its potential abolition. Yeah, yeah. So there are two claims that uh, originally appear in the 1619 Project and some of the the, uh, the work that's put out by uh, its, its chief essayist. That's uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones who edited the thing. Uh, so she wrote an overview essay, and she basically puts preeminence to uh, the uh, pro-slavery cause as the motivating factor of why the colonists revolted. And what she does is she, she uh, latches on to uh, – Two historical events that have previously been narrowly construed. One of them is the Somerset ruling of 1772. This is a legal case that happens in in Great Britain proper where um, the court determines that slavery has not been established in the statute books in England proper. And therefore, when a, when a, um, a slave owner from the colonies brought his slave into England, that man, Somerset, was freed. So uh, this is a, a landmark case in the history of abolitionism. It's a good part of the, uh, the, the classical liberal story connecting people like Adam Smith 
and then his later descendants, Richard Cobden, to uh, the anti-slavery cause because they're also of the same tradition that brings out the Somerset ruling, the uh, the abolitionist case in England proper. Uh, so it's a major event in world history. It's a major event in the trajectory of, of launching British abolitionism. But what the 1619 Project does is they extend that claim well beyond what the evidence states, and they say, well, because of the Somerset ruling in England proper, abolition was now an existential threat to the slave owners of the uh, the southern colonies in the United States. And the idea is that uh, this, not uh, what we've traditionally been told of, uh, of tax revolts, is what induced them to uh, to move toward revolution in the aftermath. And then the second thing she claims in support of this, so uh, in late 1775, uh, the colonial governor of Virginia, the Earl of Dunmore, is basically on the run. The uh, All of the local communities had, uh, had declared their outrage with the crown. Virginia, like all of the other colonies, is by this point moving quickly and rapidly toward declaring independence. And what Dunmore does as he's being chased around the state is he tries a Hail Mary pass to basically salvage his own uh, governorship, his own political career. And that is uh, he puts out a call, a mass call for arms to uh, suppress the fomenting rebellion. And one of the clauses of his call for arms is he extended a promise of emancipation to any slave on the rebel side that fled to the loyalist lines and joined his army. Uh, Now, he writes in an exemption and says, if you're a, a loyalist slave owner, you get to keep your slaves. Uh, these are not covered, so it's only uh, slave owners that are in revolt, uh, and it's basically this call to come take up arms with me and preserve my governorship, and and this will uh, uh, will be your reward. Uh, so it's a true historical event, and it has implications. It shows that the slavery theme cuts across the lines of the revolution. There are pro-slavery and anti-slavery founding fathers, uh, pro-slavery and anti-slavery loyalists as well. Uh, but she uh, she takes the Dunmore Proclamation and, again, stretches the evidence well beyond what anyone could ever uh, uh, sustain on it and elevates it to the primary cause of what turns the southern colonies against the crown, uh, even though many of them have been uh, basically up in arms and revolt since Lexington and Concord, which is several months prior to any of this episode happening. So it, it comes from a grain of truth that's been exaggerated well beyond the evidence. Uh, we even see uh, – clear counter-arguments to this evidence if you just follow the trajectory of British abolition. So Somerset's case is 1772. Britain doesn't uh, adopt an Emancipation Act for its colonies until 1833. So uh, you're, you're talking half a century later, and that is is one of the great political battles of human history is just to get from Somerset to emancipation. It is a 50-year slog fought through Parliament uh, time and time and time again, going up against defeat until they finally were able to push it through in 1833. So the idea that Britain was on the um, the imminent precipice of uh, abolishing slavery in the American colonies in 1776 is, uh, I'd say, utter nonsense. The idea that this is the primary motivator, I mean, it certainly does irritate some of the slave owners of the of the uh, southern colonies that Dunmore has called for their slaves to uh, escape and take up arms. But if you look deeper into the rhetoric, it's not that they fear emancipation is coming. What they feared and what they were claiming is that Dunmore himself was trying to instigate a slave revolt. 
So uh, a slightly different angle than what the uh, the 1619 project is projected. Uh, and, and, you, and you start to see this if you look into the nuance of Dunmore's own career – uh, you find out he's not an abolitionist by any means. He's a uh, a British aristocrat or Scottish aristocrat. Uh, is very conservative, almost reactionary in his politics. Has his own stake, financial stake in the slave system when he's governor of Virginia. After he gets booted out of Virginia, his retirement gig is to become governor of the Bahamas. And he, he's one of the most notorious governors in the, the Bahamas history because he basically takes all the slaves of the colony and puts them onto this massive uh, forced labor uh, fortification scheme to build up uh, military defenses around all the islands. Uh, it even gets him into trouble with the crown because he's spending so much money on it. But it's a, a really brutal period in, in Bahamian history uh, under the same guy that now has somehow been appropriated into this uh, this early abolitionist hero. It just doesn't make sense. So in light of all this, can I presume that you would look at the 1619 Project and say, in summary, there's some material in here that honest people really do need to reckon with. And it's Absolutely. not made up Absolutely. out of whole cloth. But at the same time, there, there's also some material – that goes way off the rails and needs severe correction. Is that a decent summary? I, I think that's entirely fair. And I, I've made the point basically from the beginning. I've tried to narrow my criticism of the specific points that I think are in error and also defend it uh, at points where I think they've gotten it right, such as Lincoln and colonization. Another way to think of this, it's really one article that is just kind of the glaring uh, millstone around the neck of the entire project. I'd even go so far to put it. And that's a uh, – this piece by Matthew Desmond, who's a, uh, a sociologist at, uh, at Princeton, and he basically did a synopsis of this new history of capitalism theme uh, to argue that, uh, that slavery is the mechanism and the engine of industry in the United States. And I, I would argue that that entire art article has sufficient numbers of errors in it that it probably warrants retraction by an honest journalist. Uh, I've tried to press this case with the New York Times, including asking them to correct some of the more narrow uh, statistical claims that they got wrong in the article and have just been basically blown off, uh, ignored. Uh, they say they're not interested in doing that. Um, I think there are some other smaller error, errors that could be corrected. So it's like scaling back the claims around Somerset and Lord Dunmore with their relation to the revolution. Uh, note them as facts because there are instances where the loyalist side – does actually have a better record on slavery than uh, than the, uh, the the rebels, the colonists that are uh, are seeking independence, uh, including some that are not mentioned. So when um, the British evacuate New York City in 1783 at the end of the war, uh, Sir Guy Carleton, who's the general on the British side that held the city uh, prior to the settlement of the peace, uh, so he's the opposite of George Washington. Uh, Carleton during his evacuation. He very quietly goes around and tries to round up as many slaves as he can and gets about 3,000 slaves out of the city of New York and takes them up to Nova Scotia. And this becomes like a major point of contention in the early republic era because uh, the Americans, as part of the peace treaties that they signed after the war, keep pressing for either the return of their slaves or for payment on it. And I think that's an important story. It's a big caveat that dampens some of the uh, uh, the liber – libertarian themes of, of, of what the, uh, the revolution was all about, and it, and it does implicate some of the more prominent founders. So Alexander Hamilton, as a member of the uh, Confederation Congress, is the person that pushes 
the uh, the claim to try and get repayment for these slaves taken from his home state of New York. Uh, so stories like that need to be told, but it's something that cuts across the lines of uh, whether you're you're a patriot or a loyalist. Because on the other other hand of it, what you see is in the immediate aftermath of uh, of uh, America declaring independence, several of the nor- northern colonies now constituted as states. Some of the first major actions they take is to abolish slavery in their borders. So Massachusetts adopts a new constitution in 1780, and in the next year they have a a, a very similar ruling to the Somerset case. Uh, it's referred to as the Quack Walker case, where they abolish slavery in Massachusetts. Vermont uh, establishes itself as an independent republic, aligns with the Americans, enters under an anti-slavery constitution. Uh, and you start seeing all the way down the board. So Connecticut, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, all, Rhode Island, all these other states in New England start to one by one knock off slavery by uh, an, either Emancipation Act or a Gradual Emancipation Act. Uh, most of this takes place in the 1780s and 1790s, stuff that would not have likely happened at that pace had uh, the uh, the new constituted United States uh, lost the Revolutionary War. So uh, it does have both pro-slavery and anti-slavery implications, and that's the kind of nuance that I think is missing from the 1619 project. Well, with that, we will uh, call it a day. I'm going to link at tomwoods.com slash 1581 to that article of yours, fact-checking the 1619 Project and its critics. And I think people will see that just as in the conversation we had now, you've been very fair-minded in the way you've looked at this. Uh, It's not been unmitigated hostility or irrationality. It's just the facts. And you're willing to note that in some cases, particularly where you've made your own contributions, the 1619 Project actually represents a step forward. So tomwoods.com slash 1581 is where we'll link. I'll also have your book, Colonization After Emancipation, there as well. And as I was hinting to you before we recorded, I hope maybe something that may come out of this is more published work, perhaps in book form, by a certain (laughs) Phil Magnus. That's uh, currently under consideration of uh, maybe doing a collection of essays on the themes explored by the 1619 Project. Good, good, good. I'm very good at giving people homework assignments that I myself have no intention of doing. So (laughs) anyway, good luck with that. Thanks for your time today, Phil. Absolutely. Thanks. All right, everybody, a brief word for you Canadians in the audience. We've got a Canadian podcast started by a couple of Tom Wood Show listeners. It's The Sixth Sense Report. C-E-N-T-S, Six Cents Report. So you can find it at sixcentsreport.com. And um, the idea is that it comes out every week. It analyzes events that are relevant to Canadians from an economic and theological perspective. They've covered uh, everything from biblical social justice to climate change to Dave Chappelle. Really, they cover a lot of very interesting topics. And man, do they go into detail on their show notes. Uh, with links and resources. Uh, unbelievable. So definitely worth checking out at Six Cents Report. That's S-I-X-C-E-N-T-S-R-E-P-O-R-T, SixCentsReport.com. I'll link to that at TomWoods.com slash 1581. And we can almost say it together. Why are they getting this free publicity? Because they got their web hosting through my link, which means they got an excellent price for an excellent service. And they get a shout out from me, membership in my bloggers group, and some free tutorials, not to mention a backlink on my site, which will help them in the search engines. So if you're interested in those uh, benefits, then before you get your hosting, check out tomwoods.com slash publicity for all the details. See you next week. 
Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.